I'm Dennis Tubergen, and this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. John Rabino. I'll be chatting with John about the future of currency, the outlook for gold and silver, and the wealth gap. You'll want to be sure to stay tuned for that. He'll be joining me in the second and third segments of today's program. I'll be chatting with you about some new trends that are emerging as a result of the economic change we've seen this year. Before I get into that, though, I want to offer you a resource. If you're 59 and a half or older, this week we are offering you a free book that may show you how to save money in taxes on your IRA or 401k. The title of the book is, Can You Divorce Yourself from the IRS? The subtitle is, Your Step-by-Step Guide to Tax-Free Income in Retirement. The recently changed tax law might offer you huge savings in taxes. The book will let you know whether or not you're a good candidate to save money in taxes. And you know, when you have an IRA or you have a 401k, the question is not, are you going to pay taxes on your retirement account? You are going to pay taxes. The question is, when are you going to choose to pay the taxes? If you'd like to get a copy of this book that might help you save some money in taxes on your IRA or 401k, simply go to the website, divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. That's a mouthful. Divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. Just let us know where to mail you your copy of the book, and we'll be glad to do so, and uh, you'll receive that on a complimentary basis. Again, the website, divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. You know, past guest here on RLA Radio, Mr. Mitch Shedlock, recently moved from the state of Illinois, and he had an interesting blog post about his experience. The title to his blog post was, It Takes Three Weeks to Leave Illinois. Now, why three weeks? That's how long it took to reserve a one-way U-Haul outbound from the Chicago area. Everyone is leaving, no one is coming, is what a U-Haul agent told Mish prior to his move. Now, he is on the way to his new home in Utah, and he's not the only one leaving high-tax states. This is happening all over the place. Not long ago here on this program, we reported that billionaire Carl Icahn moved he and his company from New York to Florida, moving from a high-tax jurisdiction to a low-tax jurisdiction. That's happening now in record numbers. Mish said, we just simply had enough in Illinois. We were paying about $15,000 a year in property taxes on a home now worth about $380,000. $15,000 a year in property taxes on a home worth about $380,000. He said he had a beautiful one-acre lot. He had 30 white oak trees, 100 to 200 years old. And yet, because of the high taxes, property values are sinking. He sold the house for less than he paid for it 20 years ago. Property taxes are a killer, and taxes in general are going to rise in Illinois. 
You know, in many of these high-tax states, Illinois, New York, and there are many others, politicians are raising taxes, which will only, only serve to exacerbate the exit. AOC, Congresswoman from New York, recently began a campaign to have the state of New York be the first state in the country to implement a wealth tax. She is actively campaigning for a wealth tax. And it is actually being considered at this point. Now, what's going to happen should New York pass a wealth tax, which incidentally is not all that unlikely? Well, more people are going to leave New York and move to lower tax jurisdictions. You know, the whole idea of taxing the wealthy or taxing the billionaires, I'll talk about this with Mr. John Rubino in the next segment. Certainly, monetary policy has made the wealthy wealthier. There's no denying that the wealth gap is widening. That's due to monetary policy, and I'll have John explain that in the next segment. But the reality is that taxing only billionaires is nothing more than political rhetoric. There's only about 600 billionaires in the entire United States. Taxing them to 100% of their wealth won't even run the country for an entire year. But see, it's not just the billionaires that are moving. See, one thing that the coronavirus situation has taught many companies is that many of their employees are now as effective working remotely as they are in the office. More and more employees working remotely will give these employees the freedom to live and work wherever they want. Morgan Stanley and Nationwide Insurance recently announced that they are moving more toward having their employees work remotely and eliminating office real estate that they've now figured out they don't need. Morgan Stanley's CEO said about 90% of Morgan Stanley's employees have been working from home during the pandemic. He said in a Bloomberg interview, we've proven we can operate with no footprint. So lower taxes and country living are now reality for many Americans, and they are taking advantage of it. Now, if you're just joining me, we have a special offer this week. We have a book titled, Can You Divorce Yourself from the IRS? If you're 59 and a half or older and have a 401k or IRA, I'd like to offer you a free copy of the book this week. You can get your free copy copy by visiting the website, divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. Divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. Just go to the website, let us know where to mail the book, and we'll be happy to get you your complimentary copy. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. John Rubino. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I am pleased to have back on the program with me today, after a six-month absence, Mr. John Rubino. Uh, John has the website dollarcollapse.com. The website, again, is dollarcollapse.com. Uh, he's got some really good stuff on the website. One of my favorite features is his breaking news, best of the web, that he posts, uh, I believe, weekly. And, John, welcome back to the program. 
Hey, Dennis, good to be back. Well, the, you know, the breaking news thing is, is updated continuously um, during, during each day. It's basically just a, a links list of all the, uh, the headlines and articles from, you know, the dark side of the financial world. In other words, all the bad stuff that is happening and all the mistakes that we're making and what it leads to. Um, so the idea is that you can, uh, you know, check in in the morning or in the evening and you're pretty much up to date with that side of things. I really enjoy that feature, so I would encourage the listeners to check it out. It's dollarcollapse.com. Hey, John, back in 2014, uh, you and James Turk co-authored a book, and the title was The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. My question for you is, is it popping now? You know, it kind of is starting to, finally. So, so you had plenty of time before it popped to, to implement the ideas in the book, so, which also makes the book still timely, really, because its predictions are just now coming true. Um, but, yeah, you know, a lot of the, um, the, the problems that we're building back then, in other words, we were taking on way too much debt, and we were creating way too much currency to cover all that debt, and the, we were allowing um, inequality in society to reach a point where, where it normally historically leads to civil unrest and huge political turmoil. To, to fester. We were letting the rich get richer at an accelerating rate, and that's a huge mistake. Um, all of that stuff was happening then, and now it's kind of coming to a head, right? We're, we're seeing um, something external like the pandemic come along to pop the, the global financial bubble. And now um, we're at the point where the governments of the world feel like they have no choice but to bail out everybody in sight. So where debt was increasing dramatically before, now it's increasing exponentially. It's just gone, you know, parabolic, straight up. Um, the U.S. is running deficits of it's probably going to be like four or five trillion dollars this year alone, and we're not alone. Most of the other countries um, in the world are running comparable deficits in terms of um, a percentage of GDP. And we're encouraging everybody else in society to take on huge amounts of debt by pushing interest rates way down. So we've ignited stock market bubbles and housing bubbles to go with the bond bubble that we had um, prior to all this stuff happening. Uh, so now we've, we are at you know, the, uh, the point where the title of that book, The Money Bubble, um, is pretty apt because it's basically anything related to money is in a bubble right now. Uh, they also call this the everything bubble, where um, pretty much any financial asset is at levels that historically have preceded a big crash. But in the past, it was just one asset class at a time. Now, it's pretty much everything is on the verge of a huge co collapse just based on valuation. So when, when things really get going, they could be a lot crazier than they are now. You know, we might look back on, on these days as the good old days. And that's a horrifying thought because these days are not very good for most people. Uh, you said something, John, about uh, inequality and the wealth gap. And I think a lot of our listeners out there who have 401ks, they have IRAs, they go to work every day. I think maybe there is a general maybe lack of understanding as to why monetary policy creates this wealth gap or why the monetary policy that we've been pursuing or the Fed's been pursuing, I should say, creates a wealth gap. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The, the way the monetary system was set up in 1971, after we went off the last vestiges of the gold standard, um, governments had the ability to create as much new currency as they wanted to. 
So that's that's the starting point from for our current problem. Uh, so the way they deal with any kind of a, a crisis or a problem or a downturn is to create a lot of new currency and dump it into the banking system, which is to say they hand that money to the big banks. The big banks then hand that money to their preferred customers, which uh, are the 1%, basically. They get to use that money first, and they they basically pump it into financial assets because, you know, if, if you're – a, a extremely rich person, you already have all the food you need, you already have your cars and your houses and everything. So you take extra money as it comes in and you invest it. So that pumps up the stock market which is, and the bond market, which are things that are already owned by the rich. So our monetary policy makes financial assets go up, which further enrich the people who own those things. So you get this big gap in trajectories where the, the rich are getting richer at an accelerating rate and the rest of us who don't own all that many stocks and bonds and trophy real estate um, are seeing the expenses of day-to-day -day life go up faster than our wages. So, you know, mo most of the people who are not rich already are losing ground while the rich are just having the best of all possible worlds. And that gap, both in terms of the math of it and in terms of our perception of it, is growing dramatically. And that's a big part of the uh, the civil unrest that we're seeing right now. Um, th there are lots of groups of people out there who are really frustrated about their lives. You know, they, they see themselves, instead of being able to work hard and get to the next rung of the ladder and take their family, you know, from working class to middle class or whatever, they see themselves falling backwards, where they used to be middle class, and uh, and now there are a couple of rungs lower on the ladder where you know the the good factory job that one of the you know a, a spouse used to have got shipped to China. Now they're working in Walmart or someplace, and there's there's no no way out, no way to uh, improve their lives from there. And uh, there, there's a uh, commentator named Gerald Salente who has a saying uh, to the effect that when when people have nothing left to lose, they lose it. And that explains a big part of what's going on politically right now. You know? Yeah, and Gerald is also a frequent guest here on the program and uh, a very, very colorful guy. Uh, you know, so how do you see this year playing out politically? Do we dare to go there? Well, um, it, as long as you don't uh, expect any specific predictions from me, other than it'll be chaotic, <laughs> we can go there. Because, uh, you know, this is just... Um, we're past the point where reasonable stuff happens in our current political lives because people, again, they're so frustrated and they've lost faith in the big systems, in the mainstream of their society. Um, they don't expect Medicare and Social Security to take care of them later in life. They, they don't believe that, um, that there are going to be new jobs out there that help them or their kids. And, and so they're willing to entertain ideas from the fringes which is how Donald Trump got elected. You know, he came out of nowhere with a bunch of ideas that were not mainstream Republican ideas, but which spoke directly to the frustrations of, say, you know, the 40-year-old white guy who used to be a GM assembly line worker making middle-class money, and now, you know, he, he has nothing because that job is gone, and his family doesn't respect him anymore. And, and uh, so Trump spoke directly to those people and got elected. Um, on the left... You see Bernie Sanders and AOC, who are, uh, you know, avowed socialists. So they're speaking to a different group of people who perceive that they've been disenfranchised. Although there's a lot of overlap between those two groups, and and Bernie Sanders almost got nominated um, to run for president 
this time around. Um, so no matter who wins this election, and this like, I mean, you know, we're going to try to have a presidential election during a pandemic, and we're not sure how that's going to work either, because uh, it could be that it's it's two weeks before we find out who actually wins, because uh, the the voting is all you know by mail, and and people who try to do it physically, it's all chaos. You know, it, it could just be the kind of mess logistically that adds to the turmoil. Um, but whoever wins, whether it's Trump or Biden. Um, is not going to be able to fix the current problem without totally overhauling the system, which means the next election is going to feature people from outside of the mainstream, but with fewer rough edges. In other words, we'll get Trumps running in the Republican Party who are, you know, who are basically nice guys, but who have a lot of Trump's positions, and they'll do better probably than Trump will this time around. Um, on the left, you're going to have people who are more appealing than Bernie Sanders, you know, younger and, um, and, and more mainstream in their demeanor, but with still, you know, some really collectivist, redistributive, uh, whatever, redistributive ideas. And um, they're going to maybe do better than Bernie Sanders. So the, uh, the political craziness that we're seeing now is probably going to be magnified going forward until – one side or the other actually wins and implements their policies. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I think if it's, um, and this is how it frequently goes, you know, if it's the, the left, the far left that uh, ends up taking over in the U.S., then we'll get basically a, a socialist system, and they always fail, unfortunately. You know, they speak to the needs of a lot of people, but um, socialist policies, usually end up with some kind of an authoritarian government. You know, you get a dictatorship when you try to, to um, um, level everyone down and do it by force, which is how socialism works. So, you know, it worries me that we're going to end up with something like that and then have to dig ourselves out of basically a, you know, an, a Venezuela-style dictatorship here. That would be horrible. But you know what? That's what you get when you screw up your finances. You can look back through uh, financial history all the way back to the Roman Empire. And when you screw up your money, you end up screwing up your politics, and you end up with some kind of an authoritarian thing going on. You know, um, Germany in the 1920s had a hyperinflation that wiped out the value of their currency. Um, within a few years, they got Hitler. Um, France in the 1700s screwed up their money in, in ways that are very similar to what we're doing now. And they ended up with Napoleon. Uh, and, and a whole generation of European wars, you know, and then there are many more examples of that happening historically, which makes what we're doing right now very scary because there's a lot of historical precedent and all of it is ugly. You know, the idea of us muddling through this and getting to some kind of a sustainable future without a huge amount of pain is really unlikely, both mathematically and historically. So, John, you had mentioned earlier in this segment uh, that there, there's just massive amounts of debt, and historically speaking, massive amounts of debt often lead to deflationary periods of time, deflationary collapses. And yet at the same time, the Federal Reserve is printing. I mean, we have conversations that took place a dozen years ago in billions. Those same conversations are taking place, but now we've just moved the decimal and we talk about money creation in trillions. What side of this inflation-deflation argument do you come down on as far as the ultimate economic destination? Well, that what's, that's what makes this such a complex time, because you're right. Too much debt is deflationary in the sense that uh, 
when you borrow too much money uh, as a society, a lot of people start going bankrupt because they can't cover their interest and, and principal payments. Um, they then stiff their creditors who then go bankrupt, and you get this kind of cascade failure of the system like we had in the 1930s. That's deflationary. That means that uh, prices tend to go down and the value of the currency goes up as everybody is wiped out through default. Um, that was the way it usually went in the past or frequently went in the past because most countries were on gold standards where they, they didn't have the option of just flooding the system with new cash. So this time, though, um, the whole world is on a fiat currency system where they, you know, all the major governments have basically unlimited printing presses where they can create as much new currency as they want to. And they're doing that to lean against the deflationary effects of all this bad debt taken on previously going bust. Um, and, you know, you, you've got a, a huge debt overhang, but a finite one on the one hand. You know, it's big, but it, 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 it exists with numbers defining it and everything. And, and on the other hand, you've got basically an infinite amount of new currency that can be created. Uh, you know, it's no harder for the Fed to type in um, a trillion and hit send than to type in a billion and hit send. That's, that's all it takes to create new currency. Uh, so I suspect that at some point down the road, the inflationary part of this um, is the thing that comes to dominate. Just because these, you know, these guys can't accept a, um, a deflationary crash because that's political poison for anybody who's in power. So they will create as much new funny money as they have to to keep that at bay. And eventually, it's going to be so much that the supply, you know, the supply of currency is going to be obvious to everybody that there's an oversupply, and they will lose faith in the currency and just not want to hold it anymore. So the value of the currency will just collapse, whichever currency you're talking about, because it could be the yen, it could be the euro, um, it could be the U.S. dollar that goes first and then pulls everything else along. Uh, but I think that's how it will play out eventually. And, uh, you know, that is kind of an investment thesis when you put it that way. So you, you want to invest in the things that will do well in that kind of an environment. Um, and usually that's gold and silver. So that's that's why precious metals are such an important part of this story because that's how you protect yourself from everyone losing faith in the currency that your country is trying to manage. You you get into other kinds of money that the government can't manipulate and can't just create at will. Uh, and historically, <laughs> and, and this is uh, over and over again for the last 3,000 years, in situations like this, gold and silver have held their value. So you've got a lot of historical precedent there and a lot of recent action. You know, as things get a little bit more um, iffy for the dollar out there, you know, the value of the dollar has been falling against other currencies lately. And gold and silver are spiking at the same time as people want to get into safe haven assets. Uh, but that's just the beginning. I mean, you know, we're at the very edge of the really crazy part of this process. So we've probably just begun um, a gold and silver bull market now, and it probably has a lot further to run. Well, the clock tells me we need to leave it there, John, but the good news is I will continue my conversation with Mr. John Rubino when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting once again today with returning guest, Mr. John Rubino. I would encourage you to check out John's website. It is dollarcollapse.com. 
Uh, he pointed out in the first segment that uh, the segment uh, or section of his website, I should say, Breaking News Best of the Web is updated constantly. I go there because it's a nice shortcut to see what's going on, so I'd encourage you to do that. Also, John co-authored a book with James Turk back in 2014 titled The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. And uh, I read it many years ago, and uh, it is really uh, very prophetic because uh, everything laid out in that book is now coming to pass. So I'd encourage you to check that out as well. John, let me uh, j jump in here because at the end of the last segment, we talked about the fact that gold and silver um, are really good ways to protect yourself from an ultimate inflationary or hyperinflationary outcome. So you mentioned you thought this bull market had a long way to go. Uh, any predictions as to maybe where this ends up, if that's a fair question? Well, um, yeah, it is, because there are people who run the numbers that I can draw on. Um, in order to go back to something resembling a, uh, a gold standard, where our currencies are once again backed by precious metals, uh, you need to have a, a, an amount of gold at a certain price that is equal to, say, 40% of the... Uh, the currency that exists in the world. And to make those things balance, you need a, a price of, because the, the supply of gold doesn't really change much. It just grows by like a, a point or, or a percent or two a year. Um, so you need a price that values the gold to make that equation balance. And it usually comes to around $10,000 an ounce when people run those numbers. So that would be the long-term target for the gold price. And, um, you know, most people probably wouldn't hold on all that way. You know, you want to sell a little as it goes up and up and up just in case. But um, it, it wouldn't be at all a surprise to see us finally go back on a gold standard with, um, you know, the dollar being defined as one ten thousandth of an ounce of gold at some point in, say, the next five or ten years. And it could be sooner because, you know, we're, we're on Internet time now, and when a crisis happens, it frequently happens very quickly. Um, so there, there's no way to know about the timing for sure. But something like that is highly possible, if not very probable. Uh, and that would take the gold price way higher. Now, now silver tends to trade in a, a wide range in relation to the price of gold. Uh, they call that the gold-silver ratio. And it, it just recently got to a level that has never been seen before, 125, where it takes 125 ounces of, of silver to buy an ounce of gold, uh, which made silver extremely cheap historically. And since then, silver has been outperforming gold. But it's still at, you know, the gold-silver ratio is still, I think, in the 90s right now, which means you would expect on on gold's upward move from here to 10,000, you would expect silver to do much better than gold in percentage terms. And for the gold to silver ratio to get down to, you know, 40 or so, let's say. So let's say um, it's now 95 and it goes to 40. That means gold would go up twice as much or silver would go up twice as much as gold along the way. So you see a really nice run in silver that takes it to several hundred dollars an ounce in this scenario. Um, and again, that's that's another thing that's uh, that's quite possible. You know, sound these numbers sound crazy, but uh, we've seen lately that crazy moves happen in the financial markets pretty regularly. Like if you just look at Bitcoin, for instance, amazing moves, bigger than anything I'm talking about for gold. 
And uh, if you look at the big tech stocks, like what um, Facebook and Netflix and Amazon have done lately, also extremely big, dramatic moves for things that were already big to begin with. Uh, so for gold and silver to do something like what those other assets have done isn't out of the range of, um, of normalcy in this market anymore. So it could easily happen. And um, that's why it's, it's such an interesting thing now, precious metals, because you, you've got math that is, seems very solid, and the big trends out there are kind of in place, and they're not going to change for a long time until we change our monetary system, really. And uh, you put those two things together, and, and it takes precious metals much, much higher from here. So that gives you a chance to protect yourself. You know, if you own some gold and it, it goes up by three or four times from here, uh, that gives you the capital to protect your family and to, uh, to invest in things that have gotten very cheap as gold and silver have gone up. So, you know, it, it allows you to, uh, to make a better life for yourself and your family where for most people who are in things like government bonds or possibly stocks that don't do so well, uh, life is much harder for them. So that, that's what you want. You want to be in things that make your life easier going forward. And historically, precious metals in these kinds of times have done that. You know, John, when you said, uh, I know these, you said, I think these numbers sound crazy, but it occurred to me that, you know, when you talk about gold at $10,000 an ounce, or you, you talk about printing $3 trillion out of thin air in a matter of months, you have to ask yourself, what's crazier? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a crazy world. So it should be no surprise that some of the numbers are crazy, you know, and, and um, safe haven assets, and it's not just gold and silver. There are other things like really well-chosen real estate and farmland and stuff like that, that that in times like this tend to go up dramatically. Um, those are the things that um, that tend to attract an awful lot of new money. This is We're at the, uh, the beginning of the really interesting part of these cycles where people who weren't paying attention to stuff like this in the past are all of a sudden getting excited about it. And, and we, ha we have this new force in the market now, which is the Robin Hood traders. Um, the, there are um, trading apps that don't charge you anything to trade stocks. And that has forced a lot of the big brokerage houses to adopt that same policy. So it's basically free to trade stocks now. And that has led a lot of people, and a lot of the millennials who hadn't been investing very much before, to take the um, the government stimulus checks that uh, that they've received and then just put them into, say, a Robinhood account and start trading stocks. Uh, and they're behaving like new traders, <laughs> you know, people who haven't really um, seen a bear market yet and who focus on momentum and everything. And so every once in a while, they'll fixate on a stock like Tesla and just bid it to the moon. Well, they're just lately now starting to clue into precious metals. And that's part of what's making silver go up. And it's part of what is making the gold mining and silver mining stocks, which are, you know, one level removed plays on um, precious metals, go up dramatically too. And there is so much of this kind of generalist money in the world compared to what there is in precious metals that if even a little bit of it um, gets excited about gold and silver in the mining stocks, it'll push them up dramatically. So, you, you, you know, you could see kind of a growth stock trajectory for some of the mining stocks now where um, instead of doubling, they, they go up 10 times 
for no apparent reason other than the fact that they're you know they're in a pretty good industry where their their numbers the numbers that they're reporting are pretty good uh, but that would justify maybe a doubling or a tripling but they go up 10 times just because all this extra money is flowing in pushing them up um, that's the kind of thing we could see in the mining stocks going forward so you know those things are investments rather than money like gold and silver and they carry a lot of company specific risks but the best quality ones, again, ought to do much better than gold going forward. You know, first of all, gold will go up, silver will go up more, and then the mining stocks will go up more than gold and silver, but at progressively higher levels of risk. So you don't want to jump with both feet into something like mining stocks, even though they're, they're in a good spot right now. But, you, you know, if you're uh, setting up a portfolio that protects you, from monetary insanity, which is what we're seeing right now out there. Uh, mining stocks should be part of the mix, I think. So, John, you had mentioned that uh, farmland and perhaps some well-chosen real estate might be a good hedge also against this ultimate inflationary outcome. Could you give our listeners maybe an example or two of what you might consider to be well-chosen real estate? Yeah, well, a, um, a rental house in, say, a college town. That, that has a fairly stable economy or, or a town where the, the major employers um, aren't wildly cyclical. You know? So there's not going to be some gigantic bankruptcy in your town that changes the economics of everything there. Um, something like that, because people always need a place to live, right? So it has utility. So it doesn't depend on the government keeping a promise about the value of the dollar or anything like that um, because someone can live in it. So someone will pay you to live in that house, and that will generate cash flow for you, and the house will hold its value better than a lot of other assets. See Now, now contrast that with a um, badly chosen piece of real estate, which would be like a, a Manhattan condo or um, you know, something equivalent in San Francisco or someplace where they're already in bubble territory. You know, they're, they're bid up to totally insane prices, um, and they can fall dramatically in a in a in tough times, so those things would would be an example of not well chosen real estate. So you you need to um, un, unlike buying gold coins or something like that, where that's a fairly straightforward transaction. If you're going to play around in real estate, you need to have some expertise, or you need um, expert help, or something. You know, you you need to be able to do it right, uh, which is why the well chosen part of this is is very very important. But if you do it right. Um, you know, it's a good thing to own. You know, having a rental house is uh, is great on a lot of levels because if somebody else in your family runs into trouble, you've got a place to put them, you know, where you can help them by, by letting them live in your rental house. And if if push comes to shove, you can move into it yourself. The, the thing has utility. That's That's the key part of the real asset thesis. You buy something that actually has a value on its own independent of the financial system because it creates value in some way. You know, farmland is obvious. It, may, it grows food. And everybody always needs food. So there, there will not be a big drop in demand for food unless we have like a nuclear war or something like that, or else if this pandemic turns out to be much, much worse than it's turning out to be so far. Um, so farmland holds its value. In fact, goes up, and it's going up lately, in part because of the civil unrest, and in part because of the pandemic. As people move out of cities, and um, you know, homestead-type pieces of real estate are booming right now, 
because um, nobody wants to be caught in a, a third-story walk-up in the middle of a city if we have more civil unrest or if the pandemic, um, a new pandemic comes along that locks them in in the summer when there's no air conditioning. You know, they can envision that now, people who live in cities, and they don't want any part of it. So they're they're looking for country houses and farmland and homesteads and things where even if it's not their main residence, it's a place they can go to if they have to. So that's the kind of thing that gains value in scary times, whereas something like government bonds where you have to trust the government uh, to do a good job for those bonds to have value, those things lose value because we lose trust in the governments. And you see that happening now. You know, More and more people in surveys say they don't trust Congress anymore, they don't trust the presidency, they don't trust Social Security, they don't trust Medicare. You know, We just don't trust these big systems anymore. Um, we certainly don't trust the UN or the World Health Organization. Um, so people want things that they can trust. And that means um, you know, living in a community where you know your neighbors and you can count on them and they can count on you and having a piece of land that grows food. You know, things like that are increasingly attractive and they will probably continue to be more attractive over time because, you know, as I've repeated a couple of times, we're nowhere near the end of this process. <laughs> you know, this is just the beginning yeah, just getting of started. the monetary crisis. Yeah. Yeah, well, our guest today has been Mr. John Rabino. His website is dollarcollapse.com. The website, again, is dollarcollapse.com. His book from 2014 is The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. It's uh, probably more relevant today than when it was even published, if that's a fair statement, but I encourage you to pick that up as well. John, thanks for joining us today. Always enjoy uh, having you on the program and love to have you back down the road for an update. Thanks, Dennis. I look forward to it. We will return after these words. Welcome back to the RLA Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks to Mr. John Rabino for joining us on today's program as well. You know, on today's program, we are offering you a book titled, Can You Divorce Yourself from the IRS? If you're reaching age 59 and a half or you've already attained the age of 59 and a half and you have an IRA or a 401k, you can visit the website divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com and request your free copy of this book. The website, again, is divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. Just let us know where you'd like us to mail your complimentary copy of this book, and we'll be glad to do so. You know, today I talked to John uh, Rubino about monetary policy and how that will likely be bullish for gold. Well, evidently, central bankers think so, too. Now, if you're a new listener, the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States, and the Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers that sets and controls all money policies. Since 1913, this private group of bankers has controlled money policies. And since 1971... When the link between the U.S. dollar and gold was eliminated, the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency, and it's really given the Federal Reserve the ability to create as much money using a, a many different methods as they would like. Now, in my view, central banks around the world are now engaging in what will eventually be a fatal monetary policy. History teaches us that massive money printing 
literally out of thin air, always ends badly. And signs are there that central bankers are actually now preparing for this potential outcome. Central banks around the world have been buying gold at a near-record pace. Central banks added 40 tons of gold to their holdings in May. For the first four months of the year, the average was 35 tons per month. They added 650 tons last year in 2019, and in 2018, 656 tons. The World Gold Council says it expects central bank demand for gold to continue in the near term. Now, when central banks purchase gold, they use fiat currency to purchase it. Now, you have to consider that whoever owns the gold and sells it to the central bank is opting to exchange fiat currency for something tangible like gold. Now, it's instructive to take a look at how much gold actually exists in the entire world and how much is mined each year and then compare the amount of gold that exists and is being mined to the amount of fiat currency that's being created. And when you make this comparison, you don't have to be an award-winning economist to conclude that this trend likely will not continue for very much longer. Now, Alistair McLeod, a past guest here on the program, uh, put a chart in one of his recent Gold Money Insights piece, which was very well done, as usual. And he concluded that the amount of fiat currency in existence has increased about 40% year-to-date. So there's 40% more fiat currency in existence now worldwide than there was at the beginning of the year. You should let that sink in for a minute. Now let's contrast that with the fact that the World Gold Council has estimated that just under 198,000 tons of gold has been mined since the beginning of time. That sounds like a lot of gold, and it is, but let me give you a visual just to make the point. If all that gold were to put into one cube, it would measure 71 feet on each side. If you're a football fan, that means this cube would stretch from the goal line to just shy of the 24-yard line. And each year, global gold mining adds between 2,500 and 3,000 tons of gold to that total. That's about 1.5%. So as the fiat money supply has increased 40% already this year, literally in six months, the gold supply over the year will increase at 1.5%. And incidentally, in May, central bankers bought 40 tons of gold That's the equivalent of the next 13 to 15 years of gold mining production. It tells you that the trend for metals, if the money printing continues as it is now, will be very bullish, as I talked about with John Rubino. If you'd like to learn more about these trends, I would encourage you to visit our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. It's an email newsletter that's delivered every Monday at 5. Again, if you just go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you can sign up for the newsletter there. Also, uh, this week we are offering a resource. It's a book for those that have attained the age of 59 and a half and have an IRA or 401k. 
The book is titled, Can You Divorce Yourself from the IRS? And you can get your free copy of the book by visiting divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. The website again, divorceyourselffromtheirsbook.com. On next week's program, I'll be joined by Mr. Alistair McLeod, whom I just referenced. He is the head of research at Gold Money. Alistair is a very bright guy, and I'll be catching up with him from his offices in the UK this week. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.